Live from New York, I'm Richard at Quest in for Julia Chatterley today and tomorrow. And here's your need to know. A grim toll, the United States COVID deaths now exceed a quarter of a million deaths. And this is what, as transition remains blocked between Donald Trump and uh, President-elect Biden. Alan Greenspan gives a warning. The former Fed chief uh, says he's never seen anything like it in his many years in government and power. I'm ready for warp speed. You'll hear my interview with the head of the US uh, program that's going to get the vaccines out to Americans, what he's worried about and how he's looking at politicians. Now, it's Thursday. Let's make a move. Warm welcome. Julia's off for the day. I'm in uh, sitting in for her. Let's start with the way the markets and the futures are looking. The market actually opens half an hour from now. And if you look at the way the Dow and the S&P futures is showing, there you have it. It's off just a tad, set to fall for the third straight day. Weakness in Europe. Uh, the uh, If you look at the FTSE is down, as are the major mark, all the major markets. Interestingly, they're all down roughly the same amount, which shows it's a common worry rather than specifics to any market. And again, Asia similarly, except maybe Hong Kong, which does have unique factors that Hong Kong in some sense makes the point I'm trying to make, which is that the unique factors of Hong Kong and China at the moment pushing that market down further. The weekly U.S. jobless claims 742 thousand new claims and that is higher than expected. There are fears of how new rollbacks will affect the recovery. For instance, what seemed to take the air out and balloon of the market yesterday, New York City public schools have closed again and the school's chancellor and the mayor, uh, de Blasio, said they don't, they don't know how long they will be closed for. <clears throat> this is all because the positivity rate went over 3%. Record number of new cases in Japan with new health restrictions possible. And the death toll has hit a record in Delhi, where new cases spiked some 18% across India over the last 24 hours. The IMF says that the global recovery may be losing momentum and warns of elevated asset valuations, all of which takes us straight to the drivers and how we're moving today. And let's start with those jobless claims numbers that came from the United States, 743,000. Matt Egan is with me to put perspective on this. Uh, It's very difficult to put perspective when you, you come out of months of such high numbers and then you start to see something approaching normality. But Matt Egan... The underlying current with more lockdowns help us understand what it does mean. Well, Richard, yeah, let's put some context around this number out this morning. 742,000 Americans filing for unemployment benefits. For some perspective, during the Great Recession, during the worst week of the Great Recession, the number was 665,000. That means that today's number is actually significantly worse than the worst week of the last recession. That is just truly staggering. Now, the good news is, listen, jobless claims have come down from their peak, as you mentioned. Parts of the economy, like the housing market, they are recovering. 
Um, but the bad news is the fact that the pandemic is worsening, as you mentioned, and that is going to do real damage to the economy. Um, as you as you talked about, New York City public schools just this morning going all virtual for the first time uh, since uh, the, the spring and the summer. Uh, we heard from United Airlines talking about an uptick in cancellations and a deceleration of bookings. Clearly, the economy needs more help. Um, unfortunately, it's probably not coming anytime soon. The U.S. Senate is out of town until December. That means there's no fiscal stimulus coming anytime soon. Richard, one economist that I follow closely, he called this a dereliction of duty by Congress. The the market yesterday was quite interesting, the way in which it had been up, not hugely, but it was up for most of the session till about two o'clock. And then it literally turned turtle and ended off over 300 points. <clears throat> now, I attribute that to we sort of got the news about New York schools and there was a realisation that things are not going to be as smooth as perhaps investors had been expecting or were too rosy. I think that's right. I, I think that that New York City public school announcement is another reminder of how even though we have really good news coming on the vaccine front, there's not one but two vaccines that are believed to be highly effective. Um, that doesn't really help us right now. The numbers are getting worse in terms of coronavirus infections, hospitalizations, and that's forcing the local authorities, including in New York City, but elsewhere around the country, to respond. And these restrictions, while they're intended, of course, to make sure the pandemic doesn't get any worse, there's going to be a real economic harm. And I think investors are once again waking up to that. OK, uh, Matt, as we look to the day, um, you know, we are where we stand at the beginning and we are look to, to, the, to, to, to where we end. What's going to be the number one factor we look at? Well, I, I think today people are going to once again be digesting these jobless claims numbers that we talked about at the start. The fact that it's getting worse is obviously not good. This comes after retail sales came out the other day showing um, weaker than expected numbers there as well. We hear from the, on the corporate front about job cuts, about uh, airline struggles. Um, and then we look to Washington and realize that there's no fiscal stimulus coming. The Federal Reserve doesn't have that much more to do. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a reason why people might be a little bit cautious here going forward, Richard. Matt Egan, Matt, thank you. And staying with the United States and the number of people dead now from with tributable to coronavirus is 250,000 and nearly 80,000 people are in hospital. It is a deteriorating situation, as Natasha Chen reports. More than a quarter million people have died from coronavirus since the pandemic began in the United States. On Wednesday, over 1,800 Americans lost their lives to the virus. You were to read all of the names of the people who have died in the United States from coronavirus, it would take about 10 days. That's the magnitude of the loss. There's growing concern in the Northeast as new cases rise across the region. The country's largest school district closed down today after New York City saw an average of 3% test positivity over the last seven days. We set a very clear standard and we need to stick to that standard. And I want to emphasize to parents, to educators, to staff, to kids that we intend to come back and come back as quickly as possible. 
In Pennsylvania, case numbers are soaring. The state reported approximately 6,400 new cases on Wednesday. Growing concern there as over 2,900 patients are currently hospitalized with the virus, the highest number so far in the pandemic. And in New Jersey, Governor Phil Murphy has implemented new restrictions on indoor dining and outdoor gatherings. Since then, the state has reported more than 4,000 new cases each day for four of the past five days. In Wisconsin, the governor announced he's extending his state of emergency order and statewide mask mandate until January, as ICU beds in that state are running out. Over the past week, hospitals have reported nine of our ICUs at 100% capacity. There are zero ICU beds available in one region of our state. Along with Wisconsin announcing new restrictions, Minnesota reports it's closing indoor dining and gyms and limiting social gatherings. And Kentucky is moving the entire state to online learning to try to stem the increase in confirmed cases. These states join nearly two dozen other cities and states that have increased restrictions over the last week. Some states are still not taking many important measures despite rising numbers, including Florida, which is starting to see an uptick of cases again after its summer surge. Even though some counties in Florida do have mask mandates, there is still no statewide regulation requiring face coverings. And in South Dakota, Governor Kristi Noem is doubling down on her refusal to mandate masks. Some have said that my refusal to mandate masks is a reason why our cases are rising here in the state of South Dakota. And that is not true. I'm not in favor of mandating mask wearing. I don't believe that I have the authority to mandate that. Uh, That's Natasha Chen reporting there. Joe Biden says that the refusal of the Trump administration to work on a suitable and smooth transition is costing time and will cost lives. Uh, As a result, Joe Johns is with us from Washington. Uh, the, the, The head of Operation Warp Speed told me that, you know, that the plans were already in place. Uh, the train is about to leave the station in terms of uh, of delivering the vaccine once it has emergency authorization. So what is the concern of the transition here? The number one concern, if I can sort of translate it for you, is about priorities. The administration of Donald Trump may have very different priorities on the development and delivery of uh, a a vaccine than a Joe Biden administration would. And uh, I think that's the number one thing. Also, there's just the question of simply being read in on the machinery and how it works, uh, which seems to be a very uh, important issue for the incoming Biden administration as well. If they have to wait until January 20th, which is Inauguration Day, then they could be in a tough spot because they won't fully understand this program that's been uh, put in place by the Trump administration, Richard. Now, Joe, I want you to to listen to what a Morgan, a J.P. Morgan analyst, a chief strategist said. He says we're talking about he calls it an American horror story about the whole transition and refusal to concede. Uh, He says, bottom line, a lot a very unorthodox things have to happen for Trump to be re-elected. Even so, I'm not ruling anything out. Basically, this comes down to Donald Trump could be re-elected if all the stars align 
but it's not likely to happen. Why is, is so it's this difference between possible and probable, uh, but we seem to be focusing a great deal on the can. Right. And the fact of the matter is, it's all about mathematics. And if you look from state to state, the elections where Donald Trump is contesting, it's very clear or becoming increasingly clear that these challenges, uh, as well as the uh, demands for recount, will not deliver more than a few hundred or even a few thousand votes when Donald Trump, frankly, requires tens of thousands of votes to overturn elections. What's also clear, I think, if you talk to the legal observers, is what the Trump campaign seems to be trying to do is basically to flip one state just to say that he had a win and therefore the conspiracy theories and baseless claims that he's been tweeting out may have some uh, factual relevance. But it's not clear at all that that's going to happen, at least so far, Richard. Joe Johns, who's in Washington and will continue to watch. Obviously, Japan's prime minister says that the country is on maximum alert at the moment. More than 2,000 COVID infections reported on Wednesday. Selena Wang's with me uh, from Tokyo. The situation in Japan is deteriorating and new restrictions are now being put in place. What more can they do? Well, actually, right now in Tokyo, they've also reached a record more than 500 cases today. That is the highest since the pandemic began. The city has raised its alert level to the highest level. But when it comes to actual changes in daily life, what the way it works in Japan is that this alert system is largely symbolic. So the government doesn't have any legal authority to enforce any of the restrictions. But you heard Prime Minister Suga there saying that Japan is on maximum alert. He's encouraging people to wear masks at all time, even when in restaurants. And even though we are seeing Japan hit these daily records, more than 2,000 today, the government has not yet declared a state of emergency. That is what the government did back in the spring. And essentially what it means is that it allows the local regional governments to urge people to stay at home. But again, Richard, no legal enforcement here. Selena Wang in Tokyo. Those are the drivers now to the news around the world. Forecasters say lingering rain from what was Hurricane Iota could trigger more life-threatening floods across Central America. The storm has carved a path of destruction throughout the region, which had been battered by Hurricane Ita only two weeks ago. Iota has killed at least 26 people. After meeting with the Israeli Prime Minister today, Mike Pompeo made history, becoming the first U.S. Secretary of State to visit a Jewish settlement in the West Bank. Most countries consider the settlements illegal. Pompeo said goods from U.S. imports made settlements will now be labelled made in Israel. Coming up on First Move, an interview Julia did with the former Fed chief Alan Greenspan, who admits that in his 94 years, he's never seen anything like what we're all going through now. Welcome back to First Move. The futures are still pointing lower. 
This is on the back, of course, of further pandemic worries. And the IMF warning of elevated asset valuations. That means things are too expensive. And therefore, there's the likelihood that, of course, things could uh, go the other way. And disappointed jobless claims that we got this morning. Alan Greenspan, former Fed chair, the inscrutable and indomitable Alan Greenspan, stepped down 14 years ago. However, his views are still much sought after, and he's still very much a practitioner of the dismal science. Just like in decades past, he says that the current virus uncertainty is unprecedented. Julia Chatterley spoke to the man they once called the maestro about the difficulty of plotting the economic future. I've never seen this particular situation uh, all during my professional experience, anything like this, trying to forecast uh, where uh, the virus is going uh, is at this particular stage very little more than a guess. And we have to adjust our forecasting and our policies accordingly. This is a very complex forecasting procedure and system, largely because the issue of virus is a very rare phenomenon, once in a hundred years. How long do you think it takes the U.S. economy to recover based on all the challenges we're facing at this moment? It depends on how quickly they get an operating uh, solution to the virus problem. I would scarcely say we're flying blind. We know a great deal, and we know certainly that if we could bring the virus under control and keep it that way, it is perfectly credible that those who are forecasting that will be back to normal by the spring of next year, if not earlier, are not guessing. I mean, they're making sensible judgments, but it's still, uh, I would not consider it the, the most likely occurrence. In a situation like this, you always have to say, what could go wrong? The major part of the solution here is going to be to get us back to where we were. And that could take a long time. And I'm not convinced at all that we have enough information to know how to deal with this type of problem uh, and uh, without consequences negative to the overall structure of the society. Define what you mean by detrimental impact to the structure of society. Well, um, the outgoing uh, president, if I may use a very politically hot term, uh, was engaged in a number of things which I could have done without. Is the message that you have to do more to protect the economy than less in the absence of perfect information? The, the odd answer to that question is we don't know yet. In other words, it's perfectly credible to me that we'll do a lot of things, each one of which seem credible, desirable, 
and then find out at the end of the day that while they may have appeared that way and by itself, when you combine them, it works quite negatively for the economy as a whole. In the face of all this uncertainty, a pandemic, the politics, as you mentioned, can stock markets continue to go higher? I think the stock markets are going higher because the approach on the issue of the virus uh, uh, is being a pro is making progress. I mean, since Pfizer, for example, put out its new product, uh, things have changed in the market, and I think you'll find that the major moves in the Dow uh, reflect the change in the quality and the probability of success of, of uh, what products they come up with and how long it takes to implement them. Alan Greenspan talking to Julia, and we'll hear more from Dr. Greenspan later in the program. He was talking about vaccines, and AstraZeneca now says that its vaccine promotes a particularly strong immune response in older patients, and although older people who have been tested. It follows Moderna and Pfizer, who have given positive results on their vaccines. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen reports. The scourge of COVID-19. More than a quarter of a million people dead in the United States. But now some hope. Large clinical trials have shown that not just one, but two vaccines are about 95% effective against coronavirus. We are making steady progress uh, and we are ready to execute. So to get America vaccinated, here are the next steps. Step one. Pharmaceutical companies Pfizer and Moderna will apply to the FDA for authorization for their vaccines. Pfizer says it will apply Friday and Moderna expects to apply in the next few weeks. Step two, FDA staff will review the data to see whether the vaccine is safe and whether it works. That's expected to take a few weeks. Then step three, an FDA advisory committee of independent experts will review the data. Those meetings will be public and a source tells CNN they've been scheduled for December 8th, 9th and 10th. The committee is composed of, of academics, researchers who are not associated with the pharmaceutical industry, not associated with the government. On that FDA advisory committee, Dr. Paul Offit, a pediatrician at the University of Pennsylvania. When you're sitting in that meeting, what standard will you be using in your own mind? So I think when, when I'm sitting there um, listening to those data uh, presented to us at the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee meeting, I will be looking to answer the question, would I take this vaccine myself? And finally, step four. If the FDA gives the green light, a day or two later, another advisory committee of independent experts, this one with the CDC, will review the data in an open meeting. They'll make official recommendations about who should get vaccinated and who should get vaccinated first. Dr. William Schaffner, an infectious disease expert at Vanderbilt University, sits on that CDC advisory committee. We're interested in complete transparency. These meetings are open to the public on your computer. Once the CDC panel gives its recommendations, Americans can be vaccinated against COVID-19. Will you take it if it's approved? I will definitely take it if it is approved. 
And will you recommend it to your family and friends? I will definitely recommend it to my family and friends. These vaccines are going to be effective and they will be safe. Otherwise, they will not be approved. We will look at that very critically. Elizabeth Cohen, CNN reporting. We'll take a short break as we, before the market opens in just a couple of moments from now. Opening slightly lower, nothing to worry about, but then it wasn't yesterday either. Market is worried, jobless claims, and the market is going to be down when it opens. This is First Move. Richard in for Julia. Back in a moment. We are, and we are off to the races. The market is now open in New York. It's just 9.30 in the morning here. And as you can see, we're already showing a lower open. Well, we knew it was going to be like that. Uh, the futures have pointed down. And indeed, that is what we really need to see is just how far that pressure, that downward selling pressure uh, maintains or whether it just holds its own and we start to see buyers later on. It's the third straight day where we are seeing a lower open. U.S. jobless claims of more than 742,000. That's 31,000 from the previous report, um, which means that more than 20 million Americans are still collecting some form of benefit. And if you're looking for the reasons why investors are unhappy, look to airlines and you'll see United Airlines saying that a rise in flight cancellations this week does not see a linear economic recovery anytime soon. You'll hear the CEO of United Airlines on Quest Means Business, Scott Kirby. More from him tonight on Quest Means Business. <clears throat> Operation Warp Speed is the US government's vaccine response to the pandemic. And it's been waiting for exactly such this moment as everybody gets ready for official approval or emergency authorization and then distribution. I discussed this with the head of Operation Warp Speed and asked him how difficult it was, especially when the presidential transition wasn't working. We have two vaccines that are now ready to be approved and they, they will be reviewed shortly by the FDA. And we have already a few million doses and we will have up to 20 million doses to distribute. We worked on how to distribute them. So it's running, frankly, regardless. There, there are no decisions that are, if you wish, gating the process. Maybe another administration, if there is another administration, we want to steer a little bit more left or a little bit more right. But in effect, the train is running. We're making vaccines. They are very effective. There will be even more vaccines. So that's what we focus on, frankly. And, and at this stage, we don't need critical decisions. To manufacture and distribute refrigerate and all of these things, just give our viewers a feeling for how difficult this will be on a national scale involving 300 million people. We have, the companies have uh, invested into thousands of minus 80 degree refrigerator for one of them, minus 20 degrees rooms, huge rooms uh, for others. We have selected warehouses that are bigger than two or three football uh, fields again, with a refrigeration, with automation, able to dispatch and distribute millions of doses on a weekly basis. Uh, the transportation 
is secured in between the companies and the warehouses. You're manufacturing them in large numbers, getting them to the people, administering them. There are some who are saying that the emergency use authorization, you should have had longer data. Tell me why you believe EUA on two months of data is justified. Yes. So I think, first of all, you need to know that the FDA has done an analysis that has shown that more than 95% of all adverse events associated with vaccines happen within the first 40 days after completing immunization. Uh, so on that basis, the FDA said we need a minimum of 60 days, a little bit more than 40, because the overwhelming majority of potential adverse events will have been documented, number one. Number two, on a smaller number of people that have participated to the phase one and phase two studies, we have six, seven months of follow-up now for these first vaccines, the RNA vaccines. Number three, we are putting together with the FDA and the CDC a very, very thorough active pharmacovigilance surveillance system to follow the safety of vaccinees once we start immunizing the population. And fourthly, we have, there's what we know, what we know is one to 2,000 people die every day. 180,000 people or 160,000 are infected every day. If a vaccine is 95% effective, there is no way on earth, in my view, from an ethical perspective, we should wait four more months to allow for 120,000 people to die if we have 1,000 people dying per day in order to exclude a conceptual risk of maybe one person in 100,000 or in 50,000 having an, an adverse event. And by the way, we will know it immediately thanks to the pharmacovigilance that's put in place. So I think the therapeutic benefit, the population benefit of immunizing with something where we understand 95% right. of the risk compared to the risk we know of the pandemic, in my view, is, is compelling. Over the last nine months, you must have felt the political heat. Yes, 100%. There, there are days where I told myself, why on earth have you done this? However, the, the need uh, and the, uh, the desire to help and support with my experience and expertise, of course, overshadows any one of those frustrations. It did also teach me, frankly, I will never go into the politics. And secondly, I, I think my level of respect has decreased for politicians because I, I think the, uh, the short-term objective is more important than, than the values, I would say. Uh, and that, that has been a big disappointment to me. Uh, you know, I've been attacked in ways that, that, frankly, were a big surprise to me. I didn't expect it. I let everything go of what I was doing, everything, and I came to help. And what I got was slaps in the face. And this is incredible. And it's because it's associated with this administration. And I did say, I'm not actually, I'm not supportive of this administration. So, but I'm doing this for humanity because it has nothing to do with any administration. So, yes, it was, uh, it was a, a learning and some days were very tough, very tough. But I'm so happy we have two vaccines that are 95% effective. This is what will change the world. 
in Europe, those vaccines can't arrive quickly enough as hospitalizations now reach record levels. The Germany, German ICUs are at record highs. I spoke to the German finance minister just before coming on air. Uh, he says COVID restrictions, at least the, the major ones, are here for the time being to stay. Right from the beginning, I discussed that we have to understand that this is a new normality, which will be the case this year and the next year. And as long as the virus is going from man to man, we have to understand that this is a very difficult situation. But we can organize to live with it if we have a strict plan. And the plan is to watch the situation and to decide as fast as possible and to take strong decisions. And this is what we did and what we are willing to do. Melissa Bell is with me. Uh, Melissa, the patchwork quilt of restrictions across Europe at the same time as the EU is still not able to fully put in place its recovery plan because of Poland and Hungary. Uh, that's right. Even as these governments try and, you know, turn this second wave around, there's still this uncertainty over what was, Richard, let's remember when it was announced back in July, a massive step forward for the European Union. This was a recovery fund that was going to allow it to get together, to raise funds together, uh, to spend them in a way that was uh, full of solidarity, that is rather than the principle that had uh, guided all of their decisions so far, that the borrower must pay, that those most in need of recovery funds would get them regardless of what their contributions had been. It was considered a massive step forward uh, for those who were looking for closer integration within European Union members. Many people consider that it simply could have happened back in the UK when the UK was part of it. Uh, and yet here it is uh, uh, just with just weeks to go before uh, the EU budget is meant to come into place, even as European countries are crying out for this recovery fund money, uh, falling at the last hurdle in a sense against objections uh, that had seemed, uh, that could have seemed back in July uh, inevitable. Poland and Hungary objecting to the fact that this recovery fund money has been linked to the idea of respect for the rule of law. They feel that it is an infringement on their sovereignty uh, and they're blocking the whole thing. Not only the 750 billion euro recovery fund, Richard, but the entire EU seven-year budget uh, that is meant to come in in January. So this is a massive crisis for the European Union. Melissa Bell, who's in Paris. Melissa, thank you. Uh, you can hear, incidentally, more of the interview that I did with the German finance minister. That's on Quest Means Business tonight, which will be at nine o'clock in Berlin and in Europe, and of course, eight o'clock in the United Kingdom. Coming up after the break, that exclusive interview that Julia had with Alan Greenspan, former head of the Fed, the second part in a moment. Alan Greenspan dealt with many crises during his term of office as head of the Fed, but even he hadn't dealt with anything quite like this. In the second part of the exclusive interview with Julia Chatterley, Dr. Greenspan considers more need of stimulus and, of course, congressional refusal to act. Has the Federal Reserve got the policies right at this moment based on what we're seeing in the underlying economy? Jay Powell said once again this week, we can do more. We may need to do more. They do a splendid job. I know how their system works, obviously, in great detail. 
And I would be very hesitant in second-guessing them because I know their procedures of analysis, the types of people they have, and the time frames that they use, the same ones I would. You know what the toolkit looks like. Are they out of ammunition based on what you know about their powers, or do they have more that they can do? They have more that they can do, but the question is, should they use it? And if I ask you whether they should or not? (laughs) You couldn't. (laughs) You prompted me. (laughs) I I wouldn't wait around for an explicit, very unequivocal answer from me on that question. I know, but it's my job to try. Let's talk about fiscal policy. Would you like to see US Congress do more? They've battled for months and not agreed a second financial aid package. But there are many millions of Americans that remain out of work and are struggling. Well, I thought that uh, the various different things that have been raised as potential fiscal policy make a good deal of sense to me. Why we don't implement them is another question. I mean, I think Pelosi's particular set of ideas to confront the problems we now confront uh, seem quite credible to me. All they have to do is implement them. We've forgotten the meaning of the word compromise. Politics is getting in the way of people. (laughs) <laughs> well, I regret that that is the case. What should be Joe Biden's number one priority? Set aside the coronavirus task force and controlling the virus as best we can. What should be his number one economic priority in your mind, Alan? What you just mentioned is an economic issue, and that is number one as it should be. <laughs> Beyond that? Uh, Beyond that, what you do if you're operating fiscal policy is adjust to events as they occur. And I don't think you put into place things prior to when they are necessary. So I'm not concerned about the timing question because it is very easy to pass a, a large bill through both houses of the Congress with the president's signature if there is a general view that that needs to be done. Do you trust policymakers? Uh, It depends on who they are. Some I do, some I don't. Collectively? (laughs) (laughs) That's all it needs. Julia Chatterley. Uh, with Alan Greenspan. Coming up, the show must go on. How the Royal Opera House in London is managing to put on productions in a time of no audiences. Wonder Woman 1984 was meant to be one of the big hits for the cinema, but of course, with coronavirus, everything has changed as far as that goes. Now it's on course for a record-breaking debut in streaming instead. In the US, it'll be available on HBO Max 
from Christmas Day alongside a theatrical release. HBO Max, of course, is a part of Warner Media, which is part of, uh, which of course is the same as CNN, part of the same parent company. From cinema to ballet, London's theatres have been hit, of course, by the second lockdown taking place in, in England at the moment. But that hasn't stopped original ways and innovative thinking at the Royal Opera House. Anna Stewart reports. ballet had a spring in their step. After months of preparation, they performed for their first live audience in early November. It was amazing. It was amazing. It was such a feeling, you know, for everybody in the whole house. Everybody had worked so hard to get us to this point. And so it was very bittersweet that it was our opening night, but also our closing night. The next day marked the start of England's second national lockdown. This time, the show will still go on, at least online. Tell me why you made this decision, because surely you could have furloughed the company. Yeah, I, we could have, but it, I mean, it's just so important for them to do what they're trained to do and to be in the studios and rehearsing together and performing. It's their job, it's their life. They need to be here training and we need to be performing for the public. We caught a dress rehearsal, the final stage of preparation before their live stream performance. Behind the scenes, dancers have spent months training in bubbled pairs. Classes have been socially distanced and they're tested twice a week. Outside, London's West End is empty. Its gilded theatres boarded up. Most theatres never reopened between lockdowns. There's a huge appetite for um, just a cultural experience. But... We have no time frame yet as to when we think we might be able to return to being viable businesses. And by viable businesses, I mean able to operate without social distancing. The UK government has a $2 billion arts recovery fund in place, a mix of loans and grants for struggling venues, on top of the renewed furlough scheme. It's propping up venues of all sizes across the UK, although not all have received money yet. The thing that I'm really most concerned about is the freelance workers, you know, because we rely on those amazing artists that come in and design ballets, lighting designers, you know, uh, choreographers. That is the real worry because they have slipped the net. More help may be needed for this sector. When the Royal Opera House can fling open its doors once again, less than half the usual audience size will walk through them due to social distancing. It's financially unsustainable, a high price for keeping culture alive during COVID. Anna Stewart, CNN, London. Anna Stewart reporting there. From the Royal Ballet to the Golden State, San Diego Zoo is hugely important to the city's economy. Do you know the story of how it came about? Well, Cyril Vanier talks about the San Diego Zoo, which is part of the 100 Club. The beginnings of one of the world's most famous zoos was an unconventional one, one linked to a major world event, the completion of the Panama Canal. In 1915, the Panama California Exposition was held in San Diego. They had animals from all over the world, along with everything else. When that exposition was done, a lot of the exhibitors pulled out and left. 
The animals that were left behind became the very first animals that were part of the San Diego Zoo. According to the zoo, one sound started it all. We had a local surgeon here named Dr. Harry Wegelforth. As he was driving back from one of his appointments, so we are told that he heard some lions roaring. He turned to his brother who was in the, in the car with him and you know, said, well, I think it'd be splendid if we started a zoo here in San Diego. And in October of 1916, Dr. Wegeforth's dreams were realized. Less than a decade later, the zoo started a furry new relationship with Australia, setting the foundation for the brand's growth towards global recognition. So in 1925, we did have some new residents come to the San Diego Zoo as uh, Cuddle Pie and Snuggle Pot from the Frongo Zoo. Then in 1955, a new CEO put a spotlight on the zoo's name by turning to a new medium, television. Today, the company runs an annual budget of more than $300 million. We're reaching over a billion people a year in 150 countries with our broadcast material. And leading through a pandemic has been tricky. Finding new ways to attract and grow the digital audience has been crucial. But the key to surviving the next 100 years? We have to be connecting our audience to our commitment to protect wildlife around the globe and make sure our audience is always part of that journey. And for us, that is going to be critical. A hundred years old. And that's first move this morning. I'll be back with Quest Means Business in just five hours from now. Until then, as always, whatever you're up to, I hope it's profitable. See you on Quest Means Business. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.